This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. Welcome to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and each week I'm joined by insightful guests to talk about their written work and how the gospel applies to all of life. Together, we keep looking until we see God working. Wherever you're listening, welcome. I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. The church faces her biggest challenge, not when new errors start to win, but when old truths no longer wow. That's the first line in Trevin Wax's new book, The Thrill of Orthodoxy, Rediscovering the Adventure of Christian Faith, new from IVP. If you subscribe to my Gospel Bound newsletter, then you know that Trevin is a friend to me and to this show. I link to his blog just about every week. Um, if this line from his new book doesn't describe Gospel Bound, the whole purpose of this podcast, then I don't know what does. Trevin writes this, quote, The way forward is to reach back, to find renewal in something old, foundational truths tested by time, a fount of goodness that refreshes and satisfies, long-forgotten beauty from the past that lifts our eyes above the suffering and sorrow of the president, end quote. Now, Trevin's book, The Thrill of Orthodoxy, is full of vivid writing. I want to share a couple more of my favorite quotes. Here's another one. Trevin writes, The thrill of orthodoxy lies in its challenge. We are called to become not merely nice neighbors who are kind and polite, but holy people who look more and more like Jesus. End quote. Now, here's another one. Our culture conditions us to resist the lines and boundaries we've inherited from people in the past. But orthodoxy insists that certain limitations are necessary for freedom. If we do away with lines and limits, if we think every wall needs a sledgehammer, if we crumple the blueprint and toss it aside, we may feel free, but we'll never build anything that lasts. Now, among the many things I like about Trevin, he's a builder. He works in teams. He makes everyone else better. That's what his writing helps us to do, whether it's as a columnist for the Gospel Coalition or in his many books. I'm excited to talk to him today about why heresy hunters often turn out themselves to be heretics, how we can know if something is orthodox, and why he's confident the future belongs to the orthodox as we discuss his new book, The Thrill of Orthodoxy. Trevin, thanks for joining me. Colin, always good to be with you. Thanks for having me on. All right, Trevin, what's the burning passion that made you say, I must write this book right now? I, I'm, I fear that there's a lack of confidence in the, in the beauty, in the goodness of Christian truth. Um, and I, I think that lack of confidence leads to a downplaying of doctrine. And frankly, I think every generation has to come to the, to, to the place where we, where every generation ha- has to uh, recapture the, the beauty and the thrill and the confidence and the goodness of, and, and truth of, of Christian teaching. Um, and you know, I, so, so in looking out over the landscape and just, 
in conversations with pastors and church leaders and 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 hearing you know what some of the challenges and some of the frustrations and the the things going on with with people with lay people in the church i was just i was really burdened to to help you know i i thought one of the ways i think i could help would be to to write a book that not only talks about the thrill of christian teaching and the beauty of orthodoxy and doctrine and the the fundamentals of the faith but that thankfully hopefully wouldn't just talk about it but show it in a way that would make you sense it and feel it and and recapture a sense of awe and wonder at this treasure that we've inherited so that we will be better equipped to pass it on to the next generation. That, that's really the burden behind it. For you specifically, Trevin, what helps you keep your flame of wow uh, for orthodoxy burning? Well, I mean, personally, I, I think finding finding people that um, that are are really good at, at at showing Christianity from a new angle to where you see something that's been really familiar to you in an unfamiliar light. You know, I think that's one of the reasons that people go back to writers like Dorothy Sayers and G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis and people like that because uh they have they 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 have a knack for that. They're just really good at at taking something you already know to be true, something that you probably believe and um uh, and and casting it in such a light that you that you see the brilliance of it, you see the glimmer, the the you know, they just they take that diamond and they and they shift it just enough to where it catches the light in a new way for you. And so, so authors like that have been have been really strong. I, I mean, just quite frankly, I think um, evangelistic testimonies are another place where you, for me anyway, where I, I keep the uh, the the thrill of orthodoxy alive. It's it's when I share the gospel and see other people's lives changed by it, and it's when I get to to get to teach. Christian truth to others and see their eyes light up. There's something about that. I, I write in the book about how like when, you know, we we as parents love introducing our kids to things that we have, you know, movies we liked when we were kids or toys and, you know, foods and things like that. There's something about introducing the beauty of Christian teaching and Christian truth to um, an unbeliever or to, you know, to our kids as we're seeking to raise them in the faith. There, that's another thing that, that just, it's like the, 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 seeing it again for the first time it just it, nothing nothing compares to that it just it wows you again and again to use a sports analogy which i know you will appreciate uh, trevin uh, <laughs> um, i'm thinking about i'm taking my kids to a football game on yeah. saturday night and uh my wife and i we have season tickets um sometimes we get to go just the two of us sometimes we sell all of them but it's a totally different experience when i get to take either friends, visitors, including my kids who don't normally get to go because all of a sudden I begin to see everything anew in their eyes. And that's exactly what you're talking about here. So the, the gospel is meant to be passed along. It's meant Absolutely. to be taught, whether it's to our children or to our un, you know unbelieving uh, friends and neighbors and, and uh, old writers especially uh, do a good job of that. And old writers who's cultural context is just different enough where they you know, have um, complementing insights, which is, I think, That's why right. you, you cited so many um, uh, mid-century English authors there. Uh, you know, when, uh, when he started TGC uh, with Tim Keller, Don Carson talked about the danger of assuming the gospel. That's a major theme in your book. In your experience, Trevin, how does this assuming tend to progress or take place? 
I just I think it's natural for us to um to to get accustomed and familiar with things and to where we we you know we're, we're we don't sense the power of them so over time that you know I, I call it the you know the of course moment that that happens in our in our understanding and our thinking about Christian doctrine we we wind up in this place where we it, it's not that we have it's not that we would deny a fundamental aspect of the Christian faith it's not that we would take Christian teaching and not be you know, and not say we adhere to it, but it's when we put something in the of course category and it just is sort of there, but it's not actually something that captures the affections and the emotions and the heart over time that that can lead us to just assume that truth rather than understand why that truth is amazing. Why there's, we should be, we feel with awe and wonder at that truth. And then we're less likely to celebrate that aspect of Christianity. And over time that that foundational sense of that, why that's integral to, to Christianity begins to, to be, to be lost. And so it can happen personally in someone's life, but I think it, it happens generationally as Carson has, has pointed out with the gospel. He says, you know, one generation um, explains the gospel, understands the gospel is captivated by the gospel. The next generation just sort of assumes the gospel and moves on to, to other things. And then, and you're just a generation then away from abandoning the the gospel and i i think the same is true for some of the foundational teachings of christianity that we can we can very easily drift from uh being wowed by and being um enthralled by the the beauty of the the faith that we uh that we believe into uh just putting it in the of course category and that robs us of the thrill of orthodoxy and i think makes us more susceptible to drifting away from sound doctrine you know, it was this just occurred to me, Trevin. So this is totally off script, and you know, we'll see how this goes. Um, I, I was uh, recently uh, speaking for the faculty at, at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, and I was they wa- they wanted me to talk about Young Arsus Reformed, going all the way back to the 2000s and and that uh, revival, and they wanted me to talk about how it progressed, and and I used some material that I first started talking about in 2018, and I was working through three steps. You and I have talked about this before. The steps of the first group is really focused on things like substitutionary atonement, justification by faith alone, a lot of reformational type doctrines. Then that kind of shifts as a younger generation, our generation, grows up and says, now I actually have to run something. I have to lead something. So you have a lot of focus on ecclesiology, doctrine of the church. And then there's another progression then that kicks in about 2014, and it's carried us through to today, and that's public theology. How do I actually apply this gospel to my life? And there's a real danger in that element of public theology of being so enamored with the implications that we lose touch with the good news itself. I certainly sense that. I can feel that pull myself. And I wonder if I'm describing not just something that's in time, but perhaps your book identifies a cycle. Maybe that's actually kind of a cycle of how that often works. First, enamored with Christ himself. Then, how do I do this for other people? Then, how does this actually work itself out? But then that becomes assumed of like, we're then not wowed by the things that wowed us beginning about Christ himself. Like I said, I'm off script. What do you think? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I no, I think there I certainly think there could be a cycle to that. Um I I just I think people are at different places in in a cycle like that. So there are certain there are certain movements, churches, groups, individuals that may be 
following a pattern like that. And then there may be others that are in a different place uh, with that. I think, I think the real challenge that you're identifying there, though, when you move into the public theology space is um, it, it's one that I identify in the book, but more in the, in the, in the, uh, the celebration of what, you know, the, the impact that a church can have in a community is that the, 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 is that Christianity becomes instrumentalized. It becomes a means to a different end. The, the, the foundational beliefs that we have wind up becoming a means to the impact that the, to the end, meaning the impact that we want to have in the community. Look at how we're making the world a better place by how we vote, by how we help, by our either social ministry or, you know, political involvement or whatever it might be. And I, I think, I think there is always that danger of being so focused on the the impact of Christianity, whether it be you know social concern, social justice, whatever it might be, that we lose sight of the the very truths and teachings that give gave rise to the reason that we'd want to have an impact in the first place. And I think that's it happens so subtly, but we've seen it happen again and again throughout history. The cross gets pushed from the center. And a cause, even a righteous cause, supplants the cross. And I mean, Lewis talks about this in the screw tape letters. Like it's very, he says it's very easy to coax men around that that corner, you know, where it's suddenly it's Christianity and it's Christianity for something else. And and I think that's one of the things we've got to be on guard against if we are to maintain our our orthodox foundation. Well, it brings me also back to Charles Taylor and Sources of the Self, where he talks about the um, kind of the cycle of reform, uh, but and he's he's a critic of Protestant theology, and he talks about how, as as you know, um, but the whole his whole perspective is that reformed theology, reformational Protestant theology, gets you really excited about the possibilities of changing this world, but then this world inevitably disappoints your hopes and dreams, which makes you lose confidence in the theology itself. Um, I think we can see that cycle as well. And so I think that's why I love the way you frame in this book that the gospel is always the fount. Like we don't ever move on from that. Going back to it is the only way we can continue to go forward. Um, and yeah, that assumption is is deadly. Now, one of the other things that you're trying to do in, in, in this book, which is pretty similar to some of your other work, is you're trying to, to cast, especially I think in some ways for young people, about how orthodoxy is the true adventure as opposed to the boring conformity of everyone going their own way. I guess it seems obvious when you say it that if everybody is doing their own thing and they all happen to be thinking the same way, then obviously something's going, that they're not actually going their own way. And yet that seems to be the general conceit of our expressive individualist era. So, how are you trying to do that in this book, and how can we recast orthodoxy as that real adventure that calls us to something much bigger than ourselves? Yeah, I I, I love that um, um, that you talk about how it it's so obvious when you actually do look at it. Everybody that's saying we're not going to conform to anybody's way of thinking, and then they wind up like everyone looks the same, you know, or they. I'll listen to the same bands that no one listens to. They all read the same, follow the same counts that nobody knows about. It doesn't right. make sense. Right. It's just, it's, it's funny that way. I, um, I do, I, I do think that, you know, heresies and theological errors, they tend to be really good at marketing. <laughs> they're, they're, they're really good at marketing. They're not really great at when it comes to substance. And so uh, like they, 
heresies are always marketed as broader and more inclusive and more, you know, just like and and as exciting and innovative and cutting edge. And then when you actually peel back the layers and you look at what the what is being taught, you recognize that it's domesticated. It's being made overly palatable for contemporary sensibilities. It is generally some sort of old error that already has run out and is like, like making a reappearance. It's not something new. It's generally always connected. It might be a new manifestation of an old heresy or an old error um, that has already been dealt with. And it's always narrow. It's always uh, generally it's asking, it, it's saying you have to either believe this or that about Jesus or either believe this or that about, you know, the, the character of God or whatnot, rather than recognizing the complexity and the, the, the beauty of the both and that we get when we look at scripture. And so I, I just, what, what I'm trying, what part of what I'm doing with the thrill of orthodoxy, I hope is by, is I want, I want people to see through the, 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 sh- like the sheen of the marketing for, in innovative teachings and heresies and whatnot, and to actually see that at the end of the day, the real adventure is not in, you know, making your house really comfortable by changing the thermostat, by 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 changing the uh, um, the the air conditioning to where everything is perfectly tailored to your needs. That you've invented this sort of, you know, very comfortable religion for yourself to give you a feeling of spirituality. The real adventure is when you have to deal with the weather. Like you actually, it's not my weather or your weather, it's the weather. And how do we, you know, we, we've encountered something that's bigger than us, that is, uh, it, it, it's beyond us. It's not something that's perfectly tailored to us. That's the adventure. When you actually encounter something so real, it constrains you at those very places where you'd be most likely to to, to go astray or to want to chafe against some of the the boundaries and things. And so, yeah, I just, I think we've got to recast orthodoxy and recognize, help people recognize the, the adventure is that you're discovering something. You're not inventing something. And I think our society thinks invention is where all the excitement is. But for 2,000 years, the the excitement that's really endured has been that of people discovering the truth of Christianity that is unchanging and that uh, over time continues to, to thrill people. Oh, Trevin, we're good friends, so I can just keep going off, uh, keep going off road. Speaking of adventure, on this one, you know, you mentioned that our culture seems obsessed with invention. But, I mean, I'll tell you what kind of invention it is. I'll use this illustration, which is not going to make sense. I'm sorry already. Um, but it's from one of my favorite all-time shows, 30 Rock. And there's an episode where main character, played by Al Baldwin, has to put together a microwave. And they're trying to jazz up the microwave, invent a newer, better microwave. So they say, why not, why not, you know, forget one door. We need four doors. Okay, well, forget that. You know, what if we had wheels? What if our microwave had wheels that could move? And they're getting so excited. They look at it in the end and they say, we just invented the Pontiac Aztec. <laughs> That's the kind of invention we're talking about here. We're messing around with all kinds of stuff, but then we're just reinventing older, passe things. That's what I see you talking about with heresies in here. Like you're just going back to some old busted thing that a previous generation discarded. But you're thinking that it's it's so special. It feels like fashion often works that way as well. But I love uh, love your quote here on um, um, this is I think my favorite quote in the book. 
Um, and you jumped a couple questions ahead on me with what makes heresy so appealing. Um, but I love what you, I would just say here, quote, the broadness and coherence of orthodoxy outshines the narrowness of heresy in the architectural shape of Christian theology. Orthodoxy, like the spires and beams in a Gothic structure, can uphold a bigger and stronger roof. Heresy, however, is like a series of cracks that tend to multiply in ways that, over time, can't sustain the weight of such beauty. By spreading throughout the structure, heresies lead to collapse. I, I, I told people up front, this is a very vivid book, and knowing you and through the through the process of writing this book, I know that was something that you really um, strove to do, and um, it's just a beautiful thing uh, to read. Now explain, Trevin, what you mean by heresy hunters themselves ending up heretics. I'm wondering if you have some examples of this. Yeah, I you know what's interesting is that um, sometimes generally heresies there there has to be at least some kind of truth in a heresy, otherwise it would never catch on. So that you the one thing to recognize is that generally speaking, heretics don't start out by wanting to destroy the church. They generally want to start out by wanting to defend some aspect of a doctrine that they see as vitally important. What what can happen over time though is that someone that is extraordinarily passionate about a particular doctrine and is ready to, you know, bring down the hammer on anyone who steps out of line regarding that doctrine. So that's what I mean by heresy hunter. Like they're looking for anyone who may be even close to wobbling on that or you know or even drifting toward a boundary marker on that. They can wind up become so 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 singularly obsessed with the particular doctrine that they're that they're that they're most passionate about that they can begin to wield that doctrine as a weapon over against other also very important doctrines of the Christian faith. So, I mean, I think a good example of this would be Pelagius. Pelagius uh, uh, recognized, you know, 1600 years ago or so, recognized that there was a lot of laxity, moral laxity in the church during the, you know, the era after these persecutions had passed and things. And and so um, Pelagius winds up, I mean, he, He's extraordinarily passionate about um, wanting um, people to, you know, to. Uh, he's extraordinarily passionate about the moral vision of Christianity, and he wants people to to live like Christians. Which that's true. We should all want that, you know. Like, I think that's something that the church fathers would have shared with with Pelagius. But but what happens is by by taking that one obsession, and then by by um, um, leaving out other truths of, of Christian teaching about sinful nature and about repentance and what the, the whole life of faith looks like and whatnot, Pelagius winds up um, so exaggerating um, human ability and human the nature of human goodness and whatnot that he that he winds up you know falling into the ditch of heresy. I mean Arius is similar in that he wants to safeguard you know, Arius is probably the like he's the quintessential heretic, right? Like the 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 one that you would lead to. But what what what's driving Arius? Well, Arius is driven by a, a desire to safeguard the glory of God the Father. He he believes that in um, uh, equating the Son with the Father in the way that that was happening at the time, um, he he thinks Jesus should be exalted. I mean, he says, you know, and he thinks Jesus is the most exalted of all the creatures. And then even temporally, he comes before everyone else. But he's putting Jesus, on, he's putting the Son of God on that, on the 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 creature side of the creator-creature distinction. 
And the other church fathers recognize that in that desire to safeguard the glory of God the Father, he's actually diminishing God the Son in a way that is leading him to 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 take this one doctrine of of God the Father being so glorified and wielding it and to to the to where eventually you don't have Jesus as the God man who has come to save us. And that one vowel in the in you know homoousios or homoousios is the is the is 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 where orthodoxy and heresy it's that one vowel is is the dividing line um and so yeah it, this is this is how it happens heresy hunters can sometimes be so focused on a particular truth of christianity that they fail to keep other complementary truths in perspective and then they wind up becoming heretics themselves i'm not going to put these words into your mouth trevin i'll say them uh, I just saw something recently from one of my colleagues on our editorial staff at TGC. He was observing that we've heard a lot over the last, say, six years or so that we shouldn't expect our politicians to be pastors. And he noticed that a lot of the same people who have said we don't expect our politicians to be pastors now say we expect our pastors to be politicians and pundits. <laughs> And I thought, well, that's pretty interesting how you start from something that does make sense. Those are distinct offices. But then the underlying motivation of it creates a scenario where, oh, theology is out the window. Christian standard, Christian morality, ethics is out the window altogether. Now we all just need to act like the worst example of politicians. And I was reading a profile of one of the more notorious in our era um, kind of heresy hunters out there and how he made a shipwreck of his life and more or less became a heretic through political advocacy. Um, and so I'm glad you gave some of those historical examples. I think we can we can see this as a, a perpetual challenge for those who are so animated at one problem. It's almost like they need to recognize threats from multiple directions. Um, shout out to Trevin's book, The Multi-Directional Leader. Excellent book. I think, Trevin, this is probably one of the biggest objections to your book. How are we supposed to know if something is orthodox, especially as Protestants? Um, I think it's admittedly confusing when people say the Bible clearly says, and they don't agree on what the Bible clearly says. And we also know that even the church can be heretical. So we can't just appeal to Rome. We know that even the church leaders can themselves go astray. You mentioned Arius. We could mention Athanasius, talk about his triumph at the Council of Nicaea, and yet, as we know, exiled by subsequent emperors and, and church leaders um, where the Arian view was, was dominant. So how do we know? How do we know something's orthodox? Yeah, that, that's a great question. That's one of the that's one of the challenges of writing a book about orthodoxy is that you you uh, I I have to in chapter one really define the way I'm using the term because there there's there's a sense, Colin, in which you know, um, for example, that there's a sense in which it would go against Baptist orthodoxy, for example to believe it, to be practicing infant baptism, right? So, like, there's a sense in which our 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 confessions of faith that um are are connected to various different you know i would say houses in the neighborhood so to speak between presbyterians or methodists or you know baptists or whatnot there's a sense in which there is an orthodoxy a small o orthodoxy to uphold in 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 those distinctions you know um you know the the 
when we think of um, uh, the reformed tradition, you know, there was the debate between, um, you know, Calvin's followers and Arminius, of course, because the, the question was, what are we going to consider sort of orthodox in the, in, in terms of um, this, this understanding of uh, how God's sovereignty and how human responsibility works together. And, and, and it wasn't that it was necessarily anathematizing the other side is that they're not believers, but, but they were very much wanting to safeguard what they believed to be the, the, the the truth of what scripture teaches uh for that for that tradition so in but in this book i'm i'm really i'm taking the thomas odin classic christianity consensual christianity or um uh c.s lewis mere christianity um vision of what orthodoxy is this is what uh, chuck colson in, in the faith re- did, did something similar this is what uh the old quote is what has been believed everywhere by every by uh by everyone through all time you know um always by everyone everywhere uh like these are the foundational beliefs of christianity that it's the it's the trinitarian foundation that is at the heart of the creeds it's um it's the, the those creeds are then the foundation of the confessions of various denominations and groups and then and and so there's that there is that that classic core of christianity now that does not mean that there is not uh, um, debate, significant debate, and significant differences between people who would adhere to that classic core um, on on any number of things. I mean, one of the things I mentioned in the first part of the book is, you know, generally Protestants may be convinced of something in Scripture, and we may move from one denomination to another or whatnot, um, and and we would consider it like, may, you know, like almost like a, a transferring, like going to another house in the neighborhood, but. Um, between Protestantism and Eastern Orthodoxy and Catholicism, we use terms like conversion rather than just sort of a movement because we recognize the differences are that significant. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we have the, you know, the the Reformation. So I am not seeking to downplay those at all. I, I do write, you know, it's it's a, you know, Catholic friends of mine who may read the book are going to probably roll their eyes at parts because they I'm I'm appealing to that classic core Trinitarian understanding of Christianity, and yet I'm certainly writing as an evangelical Protestant whose evangelical emphases, you know, run all throughout the book. But that's because I believe those evangelical emphases are found not only in Scripture, but also in some of the same Church Fathers that Catholic and Orthodox theologians would would refer back to. I think you can you can see those there. So. I think we've got to. Um, um, I, I think this is a time for us when things are crazy and the world is spinning, wobbling. You know, as Chesterton would say, and others. I think this is a time for us to to say, okay, we need to have roots that go deep. How deep do these roots go? They go all the way back into the pages of the New Testament and the Old Testament. They are expressed well through the summaries of Scripture that we find in the in the the creeds that all Christians agree to. And then, and let's make sure that we don't lose our footing. Let's make sure we're grounded in that. And then let's have lots of great conversations <laughs> with, you know, with with uh, um, uh, all sorts of people about uh, the particulars of how all that works out. But this is really a call for a return to the the core consensus of Christianity to say you can plant your you can plant your flag here and know that a hundred years from now, this is what churches are still going to confess. Last question about the book. You segued exactly into it with that last line. You write this, Trevin, the future of the church will not be forged by those who tire of the thrill of orthodoxy, 
but by those whose roots run deep through the ages of the Christian church and back into the pages of God's inspired word. Uh, What makes you so confident that you can predict this future? Well, I think we've got 2,000 years of church history showing us that that this is the case. Um, And I think we also have got to look around at the church around the world today, not just the church in the past, but the global church, I think, gives us a lot of perspective um, that that's actually both church history and the global church is one of the the key things I'm 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 trying to do in a a new podcast as well, reconstructing faith, which is it's really it's saying look we're in a season right now. There's been so many failures and flaws and scandals and I mean and and really of all types, we're we're at a moment where um, you know it's kind of like a house after a flood is one of the analogies I use in the podcast. It's you you in order to to rebuild, to reconstruct, we're going to need to remove the rot and fortify the foundations. And I think conservative types are prone to defending rot because they don't want they think they're they they want to protect the institution. I think progressive types are prone to purging wanting to purge the institution. They're prone to blowing up foundational pillars. Uh, and I think the task for us ahead if we're going to be builders like you mentioned earlier of if we're going to to begin re, rebuilding after a, a pretty massive apocalyptic humiliation of the church by exposing so much sin and dysfunction and, and selfishness and scandal, I think we're going to have to do both of those things at the same time, remove the rot and fortify the foundations. And the only way we really will be able to do that is if we know the difference between the rot and the foundations. And we need to, in order to do that, we need the word open in front of us. We need fresh eyes on God's word. And we need, you know, the the ancient church behind us and the global church around us. And I and I I, I think that's that's part of the the desire and the burden for this book is to say the next 100 years, what's going to be forged, what's going to be built, is going to be by people who are deeply rooted in the unchanging truths of Christianity and are and are wanting and excited to apply those truths to new times, to new challenges, uh, not alter the faith, but to apply the faith. Uh, in ways that are are going to see more people come to faith. We've been talking with Trevin Wax about his book, The Thrill of Orthodoxy, Rediscovering the Adventure of Christian Faith, new book from IVP. Uh, Trevin, tell us where we can find your podcast. Uh, you should be able to find it anywhere you look for it. It's called Reconstructing Faith. It's uh, a, a little bit more of a documentary-style podcast, so it's you know got music and news clips and interviews and and back and forth. So all of that's that's part of it. Um, you can find that anywhere you listen to podcasts if you look up Reconstructing Faith and um and, you know and you can find find me online or trevorwax.com will take you to the Gospel Coalition where my column is and yeah always excited to to connect with um, listeners and readers. Let's do a final three, Trevin. How do you find calm in the storm? Well, I don't remember how I answered this question last time you asked me, Colin. So, but I'll just say, I, I mean, for me, it's a test. Um, I, it's a test. Yeah, the, the, for me, the practice of, of prayer three times a day has been has been really um, important for me in the last uh, few years. So, I, I I make it a habit to 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 work through different parts of Scripture every month, and um, I, I'm working on a project now where I'll, I'll go through the life of Jesus basically in 30 days. But um, but I, I I've got one uh, this I've got a, a, a the Psalms in 30 days um, a little book that it you know with different prayers and readings and whatnot it takes me through the Psalter in, in in 30 days. And I I tell you there are times when I when I get out of that habit I feel it I so feel it I am not as 
Uh, not only do I I need that for my own, you know, growth and holiness and Christ likeness, I I need it for that sense of grounding that no matter what is going on, I am punctuating my day with with those with 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 those three times of 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 prayer alone alone with God with um with you know going through his word that he inspired and that he gave us. So I I I think that's I, I would have to go back to that to say that for me that has become one of the most meaningful aspects of of the Christian life for me. And it's one of the things that keeps me peaceful when things are chaotic. Second one, I'll change the tenses here just uh, to see in a more temporal way. Where are you finding good news today? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I find a lot of good news when I look at what's um, what's going on in different parts of the world. Um, the the growth of the church in particular areas, when I, I see what's happening with a lot of college students and young people, I get to you know, I get to visit different college campuses. Like, you know, I've, I've been doing some teaching at Cedarville, but I've also, you know, taught at um, Wheaton, and I'm about to head over to the UK for some for a trip. And what I always come away from trips and things like this with a with a sense of encouragement that there, you know, as as bad as so many headlines seem to be, there are just a lot of really faithful people doing really good work that don't make the news and. And so I'm I'm I find a lot of encouragement in that. The the church, the the church has been battered, but the 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 church, there's there's a lot of strength in the church that I think we'll we'll see in the in the next generation. And the gates of hell will not prevail. And the last great book you've read. Well, can I can I change the tense on that one? Yeah, say one that <laughs> well, I'm great book I'm, you're reading. Actually, yeah. it's usually what normally normally what people do. Yeah, that, like. I I, now I thought you might ask this, knowing uh, as I listen to your podcast, how you listen to everyone. I I am um, about sixty percent of the way through um, uh, a book by um, Christopher Watkin, <laughs> which is called Biblical Critical Theory, which is basically taking the Bible and the grand story st- the the grand story of Scripture grand narrative, the storyline of scripture. And it's, it's upending all of these different theories that uh, um, lead people in one direction or another in our society that have been so prevalent uh, in contemporary society. And it sort of, it upends that and it sort of re, it kind of takes so many of the the myths that people fall for in our society and it re-narrates them, it rewrites them through the lens of the Bible's great storyline. And it it's it's doing it in a way that just wows me. So I'm I'm very I I'm I'm excited to dig deeper into this book even after I finish reading it. Once it's a textbook. So I'll I'll go back to it again and again. Um and not because I necessarily agree with his take on everything. I just the 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 level of thought and depth in that book has um it's it's really opened my eyes to a lot of different ways that I think we can communicate the truth of the gospel. Um, in the next generation in ways that are going to be very, um, very powerful uh, as we as we preach, teach and write and, and lead and learn. Last 40 percent is also good. You've got some good things good. ahead. I'm, um, I'm, I feel, I'm glad you're vouching for it. <laughs> I, I feel they need to clarify. A, f- a friend of mine on Facebook asked me, um, wait, is this a book about using critical theory to criticize the Bible or is it a book about using the Bible to criticize various social trends? And I said, oh, yeah, definitely the latter, <laughs> not yeah. the former. Oh, totally. <laughs> so, but and nobody gets a pass. Like everybody, yeah. like the Bible is is the, yeah. the sharp edge of the sword in that book is, it, I mean, it comes down on, on, every, on all these different ways of thinking. So, yeah, it's definitely that. Yeah, okay. 
Well, again, it's been my privilege to host again my friend Trevin Wax talking about the thrill of orthodoxy, rediscovering the adventure of Christian faith. Uh, check that out. Check out his podcast. And um, again, Trevin, it's been a pleasure and uh, wishing you safe travels and return from the UK. And I uh, can't wait to hear all about it. Thanks, Trevin. Thanks so much, Colin. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound. For more interviews and to sign up for my newsletter, head over to tgc.org slash gospelbound. Rate and review Gospel Bound on your favorite podcast platform so others can join the conversation. Until next time, remember, when we're bound to the gospel, we abound in hope. Mm-hmm.